0: You know what I like? I like sports. I don't know if you figured this out by now, but I really like sports. Uh, The passion, the skill, the strategy, the validation of cheering for a successful team. Not that I really know what that's like. Oilers. Um, I like watching sports highlights and I can appreciate talent in a vast array of competitions. Uh, I'll sit down and watch highlights. I maybe won't sit down and watch a game of darts or a game of bowling or a game of golf, but I can appreciate the best that even those sports have to offer. It's difficult to take your eyes off an athlete like Connor McDavid, who is my favorite athlete. He's just mesmerizing. I'll I'll watch clips of Connor McDavid, like watching the game, and he'll do something mind-blowing, and I'll immediately rewind it and watch it again, and then rewind it and watch it again, and then watch the highlights again. And then when it comes on in the intermission and they show the goal again, I'll rewind it and watch it again. And then I'll watch SportsCenter Center. Two hours later, and I'll watch it again, and rewind the goal, and watch it again. Uh, I just, I never go tired of seeing his smarts and his skills at mock speed, except sometimes. Sometimes I do take my eyes off of Connor McDavid when he's doing something mind blowing, or off LeBron James in the NBA, or off Kevin Plar after he makes this great catch, or off Odell Beckham Jr. and his theatrical touchdowns. I watch those plays, and I'll watch. Angie will tell you, I'll watch and watch and watch those plays because she she doesn't watch. That's fine. I do. I watch and watch and watch. But sometimes I'll watch the play, and after a while, you know, as I'll first be captivated captivated by the artistry and the ability of the athlete, but but then watching the highlights again, I always get fascinated by something else. I get fascinated by the reactions. Sports networks know this, and they often deliver the goods. They'll show us some unreal skill play, then they'll cut to a shot of the dejected goal. This is why Angie doesn't watch sports, because they always show shots of the losing team with heads bowed or towels over. And she's like, that's so sad, I can't watch this. Or they'll show a goal. like When you're watching an Oilers game on TV, they'll score, and the first thing they cut to is what? The celebrate either... Usually they cut to the fans who are going bonkers in the stands, losing their minds, and then they'll cut back to the celebration of the players. And sometimes they'll show you the coach. If it's like a 5-1 goal, they just scored the fifth goal, they'll show the coach and the coach is just doing this and slapping guys on the back and yelling at them. Um, They show us reactions in celebration, the high fives and the helmets tossed in the air, Uh, the Gatorade showers. They show us reactions in defeat. Uh, heartbroken tears and bowed heads. They show some of the most interesting are reactions to unfavorable calls by officials. Uh, Hockey sticks get snapped and managers come out and kick dust on home plate and lots and lots and lots of swearing. But reaction shots are fascinating to me, almost as fascinating as the action itself. I think probably the best is basketball crowd reaction shots, even though basketball is not my favorite sport. Because the audience, the crowd, is right up to the court, like if they spill it, their drink, it, somebody has to get a mop because it's on the playing field, on the playing court. It, they're right there. And so basketball highlights, they'll show in slow motion, like a three-point shot, and the ball is arcing in slow motion towards the net. And behind it, you can see the fans, and they're all like this. And then their eyes go wide, and then the smile, and then they... The, um. One of my favorite things that I will never leave my PVR is I, my brother Zach and his girlfriend Wilson went down to see a Golden State Warrior game and they were about five rows up. And I, there's a sports show, imagine that I tape and watch all the time, called Pardon the Interruption. And, and on that episode of that show that I had taped, you can see there's this great shot that happens and in way up in the background, you can see Zach in his white shirt and Wilson beside... And you see Zach just go like this. And there's another clip where there was a hard foul and the guy's laying on the ground and the Golden State Warriors guy steps over him like this and it's all chesty. And you can see Zach and Wilson in the back and Wilson's just going like this. No. And that will never leave my PVR because my brother's reaction was captured on national television. And it's really funny to me. The Olympics are happening. I love Olympic reactions. Like, I don't... I never watch speed skating, for example, or cross-country skiing outside of the Olympics. But when you watch it in the Olympics and they cross that finish line or they get their results and they're just overjoyed and they're crying and they're hugging who knows who, and uh, those reactions get to me. I don't care about speed skating until I see a Canadian reacting with joy, waving the maple leaf from the podium and belting the anthem. It's the reaction that, that I'm drawn to. And that's true often in sports. The reaction is often more compelling and more beautiful and more meaningful than the action itself. Well, this is part two, as you can see here in a two-part series. Part one was all about actions. First, there's an action. That's why it's called dot, 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 and reaction. Part one was all about actions. First, the actions of Paul to take the gospel to the Galatians in Pisidian Antioch. The Galatians are Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and this was the first time non-Jewish people were targeted with the message of Jesus. We also talked about the action of conquering geographic and social and spiritual fears. It was an arduous, long journey that Paul undertook, and he didn't know what would happen. It was always 50-50. Am I going to be accepted by these people, or am I going to be stoned to death? Um, And there was a lot of spiritual barriers as well. These were people who worshipped Rome itself. And so this was a message that he brought that may not have been accepted well. So those are some actions he took. Also, We looked at the action of of walking a synagogue full of devoted Jews and God-fearing Gentiles through the words of scripture to see how they point to a God who has sent a king who is greater than David. Even greater than David. And not only greater than David, greater than death. Because while David is rotting in his grave, God made it so that this new king will never rot, will never know decay. He's been raised to life, and that's Jesus. So we looked at the actions of Paul Barnabas. But each one of these actions isn't so much an act of Paul, so much as it's a continuation of the loving, gracious, and powerful acts of God himself. It is God who is acting, and each verb ascribed to him is good. Look at this list of verbs we looked at last week. These are all actions that Paul says God undertook with his people Israel throughout the Old Testament. Words like chose, and led, and supported, and gave, and promised, and justified. That last one is a big one justified, being made right with God. Those are all the verbs ascribed to God, and they all have a benefit for his people, for us. He performed all of these actions for humanity, from the Jews and Gentiles in the Galatian synagogue in Acts 13, from those first hearers of Paul's message, in Acts 13, all the way down to us. God did all of these things for us. Actions of Paul and actions of God. And at the very end of the sermon, Um, of Paul's sermon, he offers up this this LeBron-like slam dunk of a statement. He proclaims, first of all, Jesus' messiahship, that forgiveness of sins is available in him. Second of all, he outlines the rewards of following him, freedom and justification, that you are free now from the law, from sin, and you are justified. You're made right with God because of Jesus. And then he offers a stern warning straight out of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, that those who ignored the prophets... Like Habakkuk, they came to ruin. How much more greater will that ruin be if you ignore not just a prophet, but God's own Son, Jesus Christ? So he offers this stern warning: those who ignore the Messiah do so under threat of condemnation. But if Paul's sermon is the slam dunk, then today's passage is the slow motion replay of my brother Zach pumping his fists in the air. Today is the joyful celebration. Today is the reaction shot. It's. Well, it's not only Zach pumping his air in, fist in the air in, in celebration. Today, we'll also see something like a goalie smashing his stick over the crossbar in disgust over an unfavorable referee call. We'll also see something like a manager kicking dust on home plate. We'll see those three reactions. So after all the actions of Paul and the Holy Spirit, we get to turn our attention, attention to some fascinating and educational reactions. So... Let's read verses forty two to fifty two chapter thirteen of Acts of the New testament ah, forty two as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about the things on the next about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the Word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds they were filled with jealousy, and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, you being the Jewish people. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's that's a passage right out of Isaiah. When Isaiah speaks it, the you in phrase is plural. I have made you a light to the Gentiles, you being Israel. But when Paul speaks it in the Greek, that you becomes singular. I have made you, Paul, a light to the Gentiles. You, collectively the Jewish people who are hearing this, could have been that light, but you reject that purpose, and now I am the light to the Gentiles. It's just, it's exactly quoting Isaiah, but just that is different. Now it's no longer you, Israel, who is the light to the Gentiles. You forfeit that right. Now it's you, God is saying to Paul, you are the light to the Gentiles. And anyone who follows Jesus can be a light to the Gentiles. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, lots of reactions. In fact, there are really three different reactions uh, in this passage. The Gentiles, they're like my celebrating brother. All fist pumps and high five and victorious cheers. The hard-hearted Jews are like the infuriated, disgusted goalie taking his anger out, smashing everything around them, just so mad at what's happening. They don't think it's fair. They don't think it's right. And Paul and Barnabas' reaction is very literally like a manager who's frustrated with what's going on and is kicking dust on home plate. That's Paul and Barnabas literally kick dust. So we're going to examine all three reactions and see if we can learn anything from them. Both the Gentiles and Jews are actually responding to something very specific that Paul did during his sermon. It's not his walk through the Old Testament. They are pretty on board with all of that. It wasn't his examination of David's prophetic Psalms. They listened intently to that, and they were very interested in that. It's not even the revelation of Jesus as Messiah. Oftentimes, when Jesus himself would call himself the Messiah, or throughout Acts, when somebody else would call Jesus the Messiah, that led to violence. But here it doesn't. They're pretty accepting of it, or at least curious about it. So it's not the content of the message itself that brings up these reactions from Gentiles and Jews. So what is it then? Well, the reaction from both groups of listeners goes back to something much smaller and something much easier for us to gloss over. A small thing that Paul does that had enormous consequences and led to two very different reactions. Last week, as we studied Paul's sermon, I mentioned that he drops a huge bombshell right at the very beginning during his words of introduction. So let's reread verse 16, going backwards a little bit. This is how Paul starts his sermon. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. That's it. There's a bombshell there. Can you spot the bombshell? That's right, Andrew. The Gentiles are included in his greeting. Who is the synagogue for? For Jewish people, for Jewish believers, faithful, devout Jews. Sure, they allowed observers to crowd the margins of the building. Gentiles were allowed to sit in and and witness the proceedings of the synagogue. They were called God-fearers. They were uncircumcised Gentiles who didn't submit to the tenets of the law. They weren't full Jewish believers, full full Jewish converts, but who had respect for the God of Jacob, Jacob and the life of his people, the Jews. The synagogue was not for them. It was not for the Godfears, but they were permitted to witness the readings and the lessons and the worship, though only from a distance. They weren't allowed to participate. They were not invited down with the Jewish people for whom the synagogue existed. Um, they were not participants. They were like the Oilers fans who during the playoff run last year, seems so long ago, they were the, the Oilers fans who bought tickets to go stand in Ford Hall in the concourse of Rogers Place. They weren't at the game. They weren't in the game, but they were as close as they could be to witness all the the, the joy and the celebration of the game. They didn't have tickets to be insiders to the game, but they could come and soak up as much of the atmosphere as they wanted. That's what the God-fearers were like. They weren't in the game. The game wasn't for them, but they were allowed to sit around and witness the game and celebrate the game along with the Jews, which makes Paul's opening words a bit of a bombshell. Why? Well, because he begins by addressing the people of God, like Andrew said, the Israelites. Well, that's not what Andrew said. He begins by addressing the people of God, the Israelites. But Andrew said, immediately, he also includes the God-fearing Gentiles in the gallery above. That was totally against synagogue etiquette. That was, that was not what anyone ever did. You didn't address them. You tolerated them. You put up with them. But anything you said wasn't for them. It was for for us, the insiders, the Jewish people, or those who had fully converted to to become Jews. And so Paul's opening words would have captured the attention of every single person in the room. And then he doubles down on it and reaffirms this revolutionary idea in verse 26 when he pauses and says, Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. So he doubles down. He doesn't just begin by mentioning the Gentiles and saying, hey, this message is for you. He's after dropping the theological bombshell content of his sermon, he stops and again says, by the way, Gentiles brothers, he even says, this is for you. It's huge. So the Gentiles are thinking, wait, what? The the stranger is including us in the message? That's never happened before. How exciting to be included like this. While the hardline conservative Jews are thinking, wait, what? This stranger is including them in the message. (laughs) That's never happened before. How disgusting for them to be included like this. And you can see where the split begins to happen. Paul's first action in his pioneering sermon to the Galatians, to the Gentiles, is to proclaim an inclusive statement that creates a reaction of division. And guess what? That still happens with Jesus all the time today. Jesus' words still create this kind of division. Even though his words are for all people and they're welcoming, love and acceptance for all. Forgiveness for all, salvation for all, it still creates divisions. This proclamation of inclusion is what results in both the positive and negative reactions that we get in our passage today. At first, you get the impression that it's not that big of a deal. It gets accepted pretty okay. It's, it's It doesn't seem like a big deal. Um, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas are invited to return as guests the following week to speak again in the synagogue. And it's not the Gentiles who invite them to do that. They have absolutely no authority to invite someone to speak in a synagogue. It's the Jews that invite them. They welcome them back a second time. And after everyone was dismissed during what we would call coffee time downstairs, so they're all sitting around, they're eating Sharon's poppy seed cake and having a cup of coffee. And they all gather around Paul and Barnabas and, and ask him questions. They, they're very, open, much more open than you would expect. Paul shakes hands with the faithful Jews and Jewish converts and gives them words of encouragement, urging them to continue down this path towards the grace of Jesus that they have just now begun on. Next, Luke fast-forwards ahead one week to the next Sabbath. So that's how it ends. The first reaction that we get from both Jews and Gentiles alike is positive, right? Accepting. Willing to to converse with Paul and and learn more. Luke fast-forwards ahead one week to the next Sabbath. But what do you think happened over the preceding six days? Do you think that Paul and Barnabas just stayed in their billets house and kept quiet? I don't think so. I doubt that very much. They were probably in the market every morning, speaking to and convincing as many people as they could to meet with them and discuss these things, to talk about the message of Jesus as Lord and Savior. The message spread like wildfire among the Gentiles, most of whom were worshipers of Rome itself. I mentioned this last week. Paul may have gathered crowds around the center square. And in the center square, you know what there was? A temple to Augustus. Caesar Augustus was right in the middle of Pisidian Antioch. They worshipped Caesar as a god. This man who had conquered them and had made many of them slaves, they worshipped like a god. In Pisidian Antioch, Caesar was lord, and Caesar ruled them with an iron fist, converting many of their countrymen to slaves. But now... Now, however, comes a Jew who welcomes them as brothers and teaches of a new Lord who conquers even death itself. Doesn't conquer them, conquered death itself. A Lord who doesn't force them into slavery, but who became himself like a slave to draw all people to himself. Yes, all people. Not just Jewish people who tolerated the presence of Gentiles, but all people, including the Gentiles who thirsted for more teachings about this Jesus Christ. So you can see how the Gentiles would react favorably to this message that Paul brings. Not only are they now being included, but he's offering something that's very different from anything they've ever heard before. And as a perk to the men, they don't need to be circumcised to believe it. So (laughs) I'm willing to believe that then. That's sure. And so word spreads like wildfire. And then Saturday rolls around. And as Paul and Barnabas stroll up to the synagogue, the entire city is packed into the concourse of this one little synagogue. Farmers and fishermen politicians and prostitutes, people from all walks of life and from all over the city and countryside rubbed shoulders with the Jews who faithfully attended this synagogue every week. And this rubbing of shoulders actually rubbed the Jews the wrong way. It's like if one Sunday, Andrew invited his brothers to come to our church. And from the pulpit, I said, welcome, Hootmers. You're welcome to come anytime. And sure enough, lo and behold, the next Sunday, the place is filled with Hootmers. Because that's what would happen. There are lots of them, and it's just filled with hootmers. And Bill and Barb, they're kicked out of their spot, and they have to go up in the loft. And Trish and Dale, they can't have their spot here at the front. They have to listen from in the the nursery. They're not even. They have to listen through a loudspeaker. And the the place is just crawling with hootmers. More hootmers than we know what to do with. And that's when the grumbling starts. And some people who uh, never really liked having Andrew here in the first place, and now he's invited all of his family. (laughs) The nerve of this guy! Pretty soon, all the Clyde regulars are seething with this quiet rage and this intense jealousy. And on his birthday, yet. (laughs) That's what the reaction was on this second Sabbath. At first, the Jews react favorably to Paul's message, but then they begin to see the consequences of what Jewish of what Paul's message would mean for them. It's not the proper reaction but it's a very natural one. Synagogues are for Jews, but the Jews are being edged out of their own place of worship. If it were other Jews, that would be cause for celebration, but instead it's those darn filthy, I mean Gentiles. (laughs) In verse 45, Luke labels the reaction of the Jews for exactly what it is, jealousy. That's exactly what it is. It's jealousy. They're thinking, we've been worshipping God in this building for decades, centuries, and we've never drawn a crowd anything like this. And you know what? Even if this message of the Messiah is true, and we're still very much on the fence about that, let me tell you, even if it is true, even if this Jesus is the Son of God, then that message is a presage, presage, presage. let me start again. Even if this Jesus is the Son of God, oh boy, <laughs> I really messing this up. Even if this Jesus is the son of David, then that is a precious jewel. The truth of that is a precious jewel that should be given only to the Jews who deserve it, not to the filthy Gentiles who don't deserve it. Why share something so precious with these pagans? They are jealous because the Gentiles are awoken with excitement over a message of hope and inclusion and justification for all in the name of Jesus, a message that the Jewish believers themselves are prone to dismiss. They don't want this to be a message for all. If they believe it, they want it to be a message for them. They're Israel. They're God's firstborn children. They deserve to have the message just for them. Who are these interlopers? These interceders? Who are these wannabes? These witnesses? Who who do they think they are? And so the, the, the Jewish believers have no room for any message that claimed God had opened up salvation to Gentiles on the same terms as Jews as if they were equals all of a sudden. For thousands of years, the people of Israel had been set apart and special. Special in God's eyes, they thought. Even though, as I mean, as we read the prophets, we see that God treats the Gentiles in the same way he treats the Jews. And so they had no room for a message that says, salvation is now also for these outsiders. It's sad. The consequences of Paul's message were becoming clear to the Jews and their new reactions betrayed the coldness of their hearts. Whereas just last week, they had shown an openness to discuss these matters with Paul and Barnabas. This week, after having to push through a sea of filthy Gentiles, there is no such desire for conversation or hospitality. They don't welcome Paul and Barnabas like they had the week before. Instead, there's resentment and fury. If they had brought tomatoes, they would have thrown tomatoes at Paul as he's speaking. John Pollock who's an author who's sort of, he wrote a biography on Paul. He describes the reaction of the jealous Jews on the second Sabbath like this. He says, What last week they had received respectfully, the message of Jesus, they now repudiated thoroughly. Repudiated meaning argued against, thoroughly. And the people who had flocked to learn about the power and love of Jesus heard his claims dismissed, his character slandered, and his messengers covered with abuse. Just last week, this message was welcome. Now." Now that they're filled with jealousy, they're just spouting slander, not just against Paul. Paul could have handled that, but against Jesus himself. This reaction by his Jewish brothers and sisters, who had just a week ago shown promise in their acceptance of Jesus, this reaction, this angry reaction, clearly broke Paul's heart. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he always went to the Jews first, hoping that he could break ground with them, and then together, they could make inroads into the Gentile world. His heart breaks when the Jews reject it. In his letters, Paul's letters, he has a definite sense of grief that his message was consistently rejected by God's firstborn children, the Israelites. But this grief doesn't halt his mission to the Gentiles. He's not absorbed by his grief. His own people don't accept it, but that doesn't make him give up on, on his real mission. And so Paul reacts, we're talking about reaction, Paul reacts to the anger of the Jews with a powerful rebuttal, in verses 46 to 47, and I'm going to reread that. Paul says, um, in fact, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, the people who were fighting against them now. They say, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has has commanded us, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. There is grace for all in Jesus Christ. He has brought salvation to humanity, not judgment. However, when we willfully reject his salvation, we deem ourselves unworthy of the grace and life that he offers. We force judgment on ourselves. Jesus doesn't come to judge. He made that very clear in John 3. I think it's John 3. He didn't come to judge, he came to bring life, he came to show love. But when we reject that, when we hear that message of love and acceptance and we choose not to accept it, then we are making ourselves not acceptable. We bring judgment on ourselves. We are given the power to choose whether the gifts of Jesus will be accepted or rejected. We are given the power to react, in other words. The reaction is all ours. We can react with selfish ignorance, with self-righteous indignation like these Galatian Jews did. I'm not saying all Jews are like this. That's actually anti-Semitical for me to say. I'm saying these Jews in this context did that. They they reacted with selfish ignorance and self-righteous indignation. And in doing so, they brought judgment on themselves, is exactly what Paul is saying here. It was a message for them, from among them, but they would have nothing to do with it. And so Paul turns and says, I know who's going to accept this message with thankfulness and with joy. If it's not going to be the Jews, then it's going to go to the Gentiles. They deserve it because they're willing to accept it. So we can react with selfish ignorance or self-righteous indignation, or we can respond with belief and joy and acceptance, like these Galatian Gentiles did, who immediately began striving to honor the Lord, is what it says in verse 48. They strove to honor the word of the Lord. They reacted properly, and they reacted immediately to this message of salvation. They did the right thing and they did it right away. Their reaction revealed them as worthy to be appointed for eternal life. And that word that Paul or Luke uses here, appointed, that c- caught my attention. Appointed for salvation. Appointed for eternal life. It's, it makes me think of a hockey player who's called up from the minors. <laughs> Angie's already hockey, of course. But you call you call a player up from the minors and they score a hat-trick in the first game. They're not going to be sent back down. They're here to stay. They deem themselves worthy for their appointment to the big game, right? And that's exactly what's happening with the Gentiles. They've deemed themselves worthy to be appointed to salvation. God's firstborn children, the Israelites, they denied their birthright. And so the Holy Spirit, through Paul, offered it to his secondborn children, the Gentiles. A secondborn child is no less loved than a firstborn child. (laughs) And again, Angie, the second born child is thinking, yeah, bet, better make that clear. Second born children, the Gentiles, receive this message with joy and with thankfulness. I'm almost finished, but the reactions are not quite finished. Once salvation is accepted by the Gentiles, they react to their own salvation in a very instructive way. Once, once they react by accepting salvation, what's, what's the next reaction that they take? Strive to honor. Yeah, that's really good. I, did, I, I mentioned that, but I, probably not enough. First thing they do is how can we respond in a way that honors this message that's been brought to us? Well, here's one way that they honor it. They spread the message. Um, where does it say? Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Well, it wasn't Paul and Barnabas doing this spreading. The people who were doing the spreading were these Gentiles who had been deeply affected by the message and are now re- reacting by spreading it everywhere. They react to their own salvation by spreading the news. Their first reaction is to have others experience the same joy and same salvation that they themselves have just freshly experienced for themselves. That's instructive to me. I'm really bad at doing this. I'm really bad at taking, uh, taking this, the, the great gifts that God has given me and reacting by spreading those gifts to others. That doesn't come natural to me. But for these people, it did. It was brand new, totally fresh. They were accepted. They were welcomed, and they want everyone to know about it just cool to this to this act of spreading the gospel luke tells us that the jews react again in a negative way though they couldn't stop the gentiles from accepting and spreading this awful new message of paul's awful because the gentiles are now welcome they couldn't stop the gentiles from spreading the message but they could at least do everything in their power to chase away these awful message bringers paul and barnabas maybe they think if we just get these rabble-rousers out of here these troublemakers And things can go back to normal where we're God's chosen people and everyone else is excluded from that promise is what they're thinking. But Luke is emphatic on this point. It says, they incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. That's who does the act of persecuting, but, but Luke makes it very clear they're not the ones to blame for those acts of persecution. The ones to blame are the Jewish people, the jealous Jewish people, who rounded everybody up against Paul and Barnabas. So just like we examined two weeks ago, the harshest words of judgment are saved for those who should know better. Ultimately, these high-ranking women and leaders of the city are not to blame for the persecution on Paul. Ultimately, the blame for that falls on the Israelites who should have accepted this message and welcomed this message and rejoiced at this message, but instead rejected the message. The harshest words of judgment are safe for those who should know better. These Jewish leaders should have reacted to the coming of the Messiah with praise and delight, not scorn. They should have reacted to their Gentile neighbors coming to salvation with joy and thankfulness, not jealousy. They should have been a light to the Gentiles, as Paul says as he quotes Isaiah in verse 47. Instead, they chose to wallow in the darkness of selfishness and ignorance. This is not a problem just of Jews in Galatia and circa whatever it is. This is a problem for Christians in North America in 2018. Absolutely is. We choose to to wallow in the darkness of selfishness and ignorance rather than accept a light that is welcome for all. They chose, these Jewish believers here in Acts 13, as well as the church in 2018, often chooses to be the older brother to the prodigal son, who when the prodigal son returns, chooses not to celebrate, but to furrow their brow and cross their arms and scowl at everything. They choose to react like they've just lost the gold medal game, even though the judge was ready to reward them as victorious in the kingdom, along with the Gentiles. And so they disqualified themselves. They could have been celebrating the victory. They could have had the gold medal draped over their neck as well. But their reaction showed that they disqualified themselves. And after this, we have Paul and Barnabas' final reaction, the shaking of dust off their feet as they head east towards Iconium. This is a very weird thing. Jesus commands them to do it. It's an act that Jesus instructed his apostles to carry out whenever their message is not accepted in a town. He says, go and shake the dust from your feet and get out of there. It's a weird thing. I've read differing opinions on where this act came from. Some say it was a ritual um, carried out by devout Jews when they came back from Gentile territory before they could enter into the Holy Land, they would shake the pagan dust of those evildoers off of their feet before they could come home so that they wouldn't you know, make impure the sacred ground of the Holy Land. Maybe that's part of it. Others say it represented the judgment that would come upon the inhospitable, unwelcoming city, that because they were unwelcoming of God's word, that judgment would come so much so that it would grind them into dust. And so they, they shake that dust off lest they be con- condemned themselves. Who knows? All I know is it's deeply symbolic, deeply meaningful, and deeply weird. It's a, it's a weird thing. Something that we don't do very often. When's the last time you had someone shake the dust off their feet after you were mean to them? I've never seen it. But it's something, it's something that Paul and Barnabas do reluctantly, but faithfully. They don't want to have to do this for their Jewish brothers and sisters. They don't want to leave Antioch having been rejected, ha- having had God's message be rejected. Not that the story is over, of course. The believers they left behind blossomed and bloomed under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Even though Paul and Barnabas leave, the very last verse in this passage, verse 52, says, the disciples, that's not Paul and Barnabas, they were, well, Paul was an apostle. Disciples are new followers, and so that's the Gentiles here. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Even though Paul and Barnabas are gone, they're filled with joy according to Acts 14.21, which we'll get at either next week or the week after, Paul would return to encourage these baby Christians. And not long after that, he would write a letter to these Galatian believers, which we call, oddly enough, the letter to the Galatians. That's right. Um, And in that letter to the Galatians, these new baby Christians would be these words. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's from Galatians, what is it? Three something? 26 to 28. It was exactly this message, exactly this message that you are all one in Christ Jesus, that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, that you are all children of God through faith, all of you children of God through faith. That it's this message of the breaking down of barriers between not God's people and God's people. Now we can all be God's people. And it was exactly this message that led to the two major reactions in Acts 13. Some rejoiced, some rejected because of this. That's the choice facing each of us who seeks to follow the Messiah. Every lesson we learn from Jesus presents us with the same reactions. We can either rejoice or reject. We can devote or we can dismiss. It's not some game, like the sports I mentioned at the beginning, that ultimately mean nothing. It's a matter of life eternal. Sometimes our reactions are just as meaningful and just as important as the actions themselves. So I guess that's a reminder that we should always err on the side of grace and on the side of humility. The root of the the bad reaction of these Jewish believers is jealousy, and it's easy for us to fall into that same trap. We think I've been here for years. I, I'm one of the good ones. And then somebody walks in and you don't agree with, and you think, how could they? What right do they have? And then you're beh- behaving just like the, the the second week of synagogue here. Then you're you're just a jealous, self righteous person who deserves to have the blessing taken from you. You've deemed yourself unworthy. So it's a reminder that these these words of Jesus that come to us should come with with a desire for all to accept it. It's not our job to judge. It's our job to welcome and teach and grow together. The judging will be done at a later date. We don't want to find ourselves judged for being unwelcoming and making ourselves unworthy, disqualifying ourselves. All right, that is Acts 13. Um, Next week we head to Iconium. I'll bring out the map of missions so you can see where that is. I know you're all very excited. Uh, But for now, why don't we pray? Ah, which by the way, prayer, it's not, sometimes it feels like just, oh, sermon's done. I guess I'll pray. Really what it should be for me and for all of us is a reaction to what we've just learned. So if we've learned something, then one way we can immediately put it into action is through prayer. Prayer takes it from the head to the heart. It aligns us with the will of God. So that's why I do it. It's not just so I can reinforce my sermon points in a way that sounds spiritual. Sometimes it's that too. It it actually is a reaction to what we've just learned. It's doing exactly what these Gentiles are are heroically doing in Acts thirteen. Anyway, let's pray. Father God, thank you that you accept all of us, that we are all made worthy because of your son Jesus. I pray that we would never put up any barriers between us and others, that we would never fall into the trap of these Israelites in chapter thirteen who disqualify themselves because they're they're jealous. They reject your message. Because they reject others who accept the message, so I would pray. I pray that we would always be people who accept the message and accept others who want to accept it as well. Help us to react favorably to all the goodness and all the gifts that you give us. Um, not just not just act, but react in the proper way to all all that you do for us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. That message is a precious... 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 let me start again.